0: Thank you. Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here, continuing our study in Ecclesiastes, Meaningless Life, Part 7. Today, we're going to take a crash course in people from Ecclesiastes, Chapter 4, Verses 4 through 16. I don't know if you noticed this, there's a lot of people on the earth, lots of them question becomes, well, who do you pick as a friend? Who do you do life with? Who do you live in community with? Who do you entrust yourself to? Who do you take advice from? And this issue really increases as life changes. Let's say you move from one city to another. You graduate from high school, and now you're off in the big world, or you're starting college, or you've finished college, and now you're entering into the workplace, or perhaps you've transitioned jobs, or maybe you've been through a divorce and a life transition and your social circle has now changed or you've transitioned from one church community to another and now all of a sudden there are a bunch of people, many or most of whom you don't know or you don't know very well. It's a little overwhelming. We moved to a new city and there's a lot of people. The question becomes, who do you befriend? Who do you take advice from? Who do you welcome into your life at a deeper level are they a safe person a wise person a godly person a helpful person a dangerous person a foolish person as we uh, as we look at people i think it's important to categorize them because the bible does and some of you will be offended by this because you either don't believe that some people are innately sinful or evil or dangerous or you want to think that everyone is in fact the same the truth is that god made us all in his image and likeness. So we all have equal value and worth, but not every person is an equally good friend or an equally trustworthy confidant or an equally trustworthy place of counsel and advice. Um, There's a book by Henry Cloud called Necessary Endings I was reading, and I believe it's in chapter seven. He talks about uh, the fact that there are three kinds of people. And I think he's on to something, and I think as we study the wisdom literature in the Bible, especially books written by Solomon, like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, you'll see these three kinds of people. And basically, it helps us to determine as we're getting to know someone, what kind of person are they? And then that helps determine what level of access and relationship and information we provide for them. And, And today we're going to see that in Ecclesiastes 4. He starts with these three kinds of people, the person who is number one, evil, number two, foolish, and number three, wise. Number one, evil, number two, foolish, number three, wise. We'll start with the evil person. Ecclesiastes 4.4, then I observed that most people, there's a big statement, are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. This, but this he says too, is meaningless like chasing the wind. He's talking about an evil kind of person here who is really motivated by envy. They can't rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, They can't celebrate the successes of others. And the truth is that that a lot of the status symbols in our life are just possessions that we buy to define us and present an image of ourselves to others. So from the car we drive to whose name is on our underwear, what our house is, a zip code or neighborhood might be, um, what kind of uh, possessions we own, what kind of uh, technology we enjoy. These are all status symbols. These help to define us and project an image to others of our value. And so if I have a, a better appearance than you or a more attractive spouse than you or more uh, picture-perfect children than you or a, a better manicured lawn than you or a better bigger home than you, uh, or a nicer, fancier car than you, or the right name on the label of all of my clothes, then that might indicate that I am more successful than you, that I am more valuable than you, that I am more accomplished than you. And what happens is in a culture of what the sociologist will call conspicuous consumption, this is where we buy things, not because we need them or use them, but just because of the image they project for us It leads to uh, competition in consumerism. We buy stuff we don't need to impress people we don't know with money we don't have. And it's driven, motivated by envy. What he's talking about here is evil people, and he said that most people are this way. It's coveting, it's jealousy. If you get something, I think that that's not fair because I should have it or I should have Better Or you should not have it because I am better and more deserving than you. Boy, this happens in everything, doesn't it? Someone gets a job, gets a promotion, gets a raise, and all of a sudden you're envious. Someone gets a car, gets a house, gets a spouse, gets a kid. You're envious, you're jealous, you're coveting. And people do that to us as well. And the result is gossip. Everybody likes to talk about what everybody else is having and doing, and it leads to this cycle of idolized, demonize, and it's only exacerbated by social media. I mean, what Solomon is talking about 3000 years ago hasn't gotten any better. Now through social media, we can see, oh, where did you eat? What did you eat? What do you drive? Where do you live? What do you wear? Where did you go on vacation? What did you see? What did you do? What does your family look like? Oh, you've lost weight? or you've gained weight, or you've been working out. We now can peer in on the lives of others and we can compare their lives to ours. And then we can peer in on the lives of the most famous, the most successful among us. And now we can compare ourselves to them and become envious. We can compare ourselves to others and become envious. And then they can compare themselves to us and be envious. And let's just be honest that a lot of social media and technology really exists because of Ecclesiastes 4.4, 4, this evil underlying desire. He says, quote, most people are motivated, quote, because they envy their neighbors. And what he says is this too is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. He says, if you spend your whole life looking at other people and trying to figure out why did they have that and I don't and how can I get that so that I'll be equal to them or how can I get more than them so that I can beat them you're really an evil person. You're not able to celebrate God's grace and provision in the lives of others. You're not able to be glad because someone else is enjoying life. And the result is that your joy is tied to their misery, which is really an evil thing. So when they get a new car, but it gets in a wreck, that makes you happy. When they marry someone that is beautiful and attractive, uh, that makes you envious. And then when it ends up in a bitter divorce, you feel a little vindicated. When the person that was standing on the pedestal falls off the pedestal, if that gives you great joy, then you're an evil person because your joy is coming from the misery of others and it is all motivated by this underlying intent of envy. That's what he's saying. Man, you talk about hitting the bullseye. Some people are evil. Are you evil? I have to ask myself that question all the time. I think we're very evil if we never ask the question whether or not we're evil. What motivates me? What drives me? Is it envy? Is it competition? Is it jealousy? Is it coveting? Do I only pursue certain things in life so that others would gossip about me, be jealous and envious of me? When someone is struggling or hurting or failing or losing, am I celebrating and cheering and rejoicing? If so, then I'm evil. Some people are evil. Evil people are to be avoided. An evil person is not to be trusted. An evil person makes a horrific friend. An evil person makes a horrific counselor. And an evil person really struggles to ever be a comforter. What you do with evil people, and Cloud gets into this in his book, is uh, lawyers, guns, and money. You keep your distance. You don't draw near to them. They'll hurt you. You don't give them more information because they'll use it to harm you. The more they know about you, the more evil and uh, pain they can inflict upon you. The second kind of person, he says, is foolish. The first category is evil. The second category is foolish. And you're going to find these themes and threads throughout all the Bible, but particularly the wisdom literature, uh, uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are really uh, kind of the bedrock of where these people appear. The second category is foolish. He says in chapter 4, verse 5, Uh, Fools fooled their idle hands, leading them to ruin. Well, an evil person is very dangerous, and a a foolish person is very irresponsible. They can be very lazy. Um, A foolish person does not accept reality as it is, and they don't adjust their life to it. They want life and reality to adjust to them, to accommodate them. Ultimately, they wanna be taken care of. The foolish person thinks, you know, I have needs, but it's not my responsibility to meet them. Someone should comfort me, someone should feed me, someone should pursue me, someone should love me, someone should tend to me, someone should uh, teach me, someone should look after me. They're, they're very passive and they tend to always be, in their mind, a kind of righteous victim I'm a good person and just never got my opportunity and other people let me down and they failed me and they don't take responsibility for their own lives. That's a foolish person. So he talks about foolish people, they're, they're idle. They're, they're lazy. They don't take responsibility for their own life. And here's what a foolish person does. A foolish person likes to befriend a wise person Uh, because a wise person takes responsibility and a foolish person likes to shift the burden of responsibility over to them so they don't pay their bills and then they befriend a, a wise person and then the wise person, or at least the responsible person pays their bills. The foolish person doesn't get their life together and then they befriend someone who's responsible. And this is where you get codependency and enabling. And then the responsible person is taking care of the irresponsible person. The responsible person is taking care of the foolish person. What happens if you have a discussion with a foolish person, they're just gonna argue. You're wrong, I disagree, that's not how I see it they're going to just argue all the time. They're not open to teaching, they're not open to instruction, they're not open to changing, they're not open to reality, they're not open to adjusting. So you tend to have the same conversation all the time. And foolish people, they're immovable objects. They've just decided that they're not going to change and they're going to force everyone to change around them and to work around them and to accommodate them. And ultimately he says, it leads them to ruin. With an evil person, it's lawyers, guns, and money. You get distance. If they're envious and jealous, if they're coveting and opposed to you and want to harm you, if they want to steal from you or take from you or compete with you. Less distance, less information equals less risk. With a foolish person, what they really need is consequences. If they get hungry, maybe they'll decide to go get a job. That's what Proverbs says. If they're lonely, maybe they'll decide to work on some stuff in their life so that people will wanna be their friend. And so for a foolish person, you don't waste a lot of time and waste a lot of energy and waste a lot of words and have the same argument and conversation all the time. Instead, you have it once and then you set some ground rules and boundaries and some consequences. And look, if you don't do this, then this will happen. If you don't do your homework, you're gonna flunk. I'm not gonna do your homework for you, kid. Hey, if you don't get yourself up in the morning and go to work, you're going to lose your job. And it's not my job to come wake you up and to drive you to work and to hold your hand and to babysit you. You're an adult. Hey, if you don't pay your bills, they're going to, you know, turn off your electricity and shut off your cell phone and take away your car. But that's what happens to people who don't pay their bills. So you got to figure out how to pay your bills. And it's not my job to keep running in and bailing you out. And the consequences are not to punish someone, but to show them that what they have done is they've shifted the pain to you and you're now shifting the pain back to them. Because someone has to feel the pain and the foolish person wants to transfer the pain over to the responsible person and a wise person shifts it back to the foolish person so they feel the consequences and then hopefully that motivates them to make some changes and so it really is a way of loving the foolish person without enabling them. Are you foolish? We have to ask this question all the time, right? Myself included. Am I being foolish? Am I not listening? Am I not learning? Am I not changing, growing, adjusting? If so, then I'm being foolish and that leads to ruin. Third kind of person, the wise person. Truth is, we all know somebody who's evil. We all know somebody who's foolish. And we probably know less people that are wise. And wise does not mean high intelligence. Wise does not mean well-educated. Wise means teachable. Means humble. It means adjustable and moldable and shapeable and influenceable. It Means you're not driven by evil and envy. You're not committed to foolishness and to uh, transferring the burden of responsibility to others. The wise person says, "Hey, it's my life, my decisions, my choices, my responsibility." And I want to learn. I want to learn from the past so that I don't repeat it in the future. I want to learn from my mistakes so that. I do better as life goes forward. And if people are wise and they know some things I don't don't know, I welcome them to come teach me, to help me because look, I don't know everything and I got a lot to learn. That's the heart of a wise person. There's humility, there's teachability. And let's just be honest, in all of our lives, there are aspects in which we're evil. There are aspects in which we're foolish. And by God's grace, we can all grow in wisdom. He says in chapter four, verse six of Ecclesiastes, and yet, quote, better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. What he's saying here is here's a wise way to live your life. The evil person lives it out of envy. The foolish person lives it out of irresponsibility. And the wise person lives their life quietly and contentedly. He says it's better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Um, what he's saying is: um, let's say you've got so much money, so much responsibility, so many possessions, so much going on that both your hands are full. Literally, you've got you've got so much on your hands you can't even keep up with it all. That you're just overworked, overwhelmed, overburdened. And sometimes what drives us to that is a love for people. It can be a desire to help a doctor who's working late hours because everybody's sick and they want to help them. That doesn't mean necessarily that their motives are evil. It does mean that they're going to kill themselves. But sometimes we push ourselves, we press ourselves. I've certainly been guilty of this out of envy, out of competition, out of outdoing our neighbor or outdoing last quarter or last year's performance. Some of you that are more athletic, more competitive, uh, more number crunchers and, uh, And rule keepers by nature, you're a winner and you need to win and you're a a competitor and you need to win and you need to outdo others and you need to outdo yourself. And what he says is then you end up with uh, two full hands of hard work, lots to do. But he says it's chasing the wind. It's As one author says, it's a goose chase with no goose. Because what you keep thinking is, you know, I'm just going to work harder and accomplish more and achieve more and obtain more and own more and have more and do more and be more, and that'll make me more happy. And he says that doesn't work that way, because you don't have a peaceful life. He calls it quietness. Your soul never rests. You're up all night, stressed, depressed, distressed. You're overwhelmed. You're exhausted. This is this isn't this is an American phenomenon. This is a first world phenomenon now that we have electricity and 24 hour lifestyle, boy, you can just go, go, go. He says, it's better to have one hand filled with hard work and honest life and the other hand open to extend a hand of friendship to others, to receive God's grace and gifts through others says if both your hands are just full of all your work and duties and responsibilities, you don't have a free hand to help somebody else up. You don't have a free hand to give somebody else a handout. You don't have a free hand to go comfort and put your arm around someone who's struggling and suffering. If both your hands are just filled with your work and your responsibilities, he's saying that's a foolish life. A wise person says, I, I see life like two hands. One hand is for work, the other hand is for love and relationship and generosity and quietness and peace and rest. And with one hand, I go out and I produce. And with the other hand, I invest in people and in memories and in life and in family. And a wise person realizes you can't have both. Every day can't be a vacation. And every day can't be an overwhelming, dutiful responsibility of work that life has these cycles and seasons and rhythms. This is why God built work and Sabbath into the seven-day week of creation. So are you better at working or resting? Are you better at accomplishing or relationship building? Are you succeeding more at getting things done or doing better at connecting with people? And it's about both. And where he's driving this, and so I would ask him, what areas of your life, I'm asking this to myself too, are you or I or we evil, foolish, and wise? Where can we grow in wisdom? How can we grow in wisdom? And what he's going to transition is not to discourage us from work and accomplishing and achieving and paying our bills and being responsible. The Bible doesn't have negative things generally to say about wise people doing those things in wise ways, but he's talking about there's something more meaningful, valuable, and purposeful, and that is our relationships, particularly with family and friends. And where he's driving at is really illustrated by a recent news story, and some of you emailed it in to me. Thank you for doing that. Um, You've seen the game Minecraft. be honest, I've never played it, but... Apparently, there's a game called Minecraft, and there, uh, there was a founder named Marcus Person. I guess he also goes by the nickname Notch. And he created Minecraft, became incredibly popular. My kids have played it, so I've seen it. And he sold his creation of Minecraft to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. Now, let me say this. This is kind of the American dream, right? You're young, you create something, you sell it you make billions, you retire, you have no debt, you have no job, you have no responsibilities. He's a single guy. Apparently he can do whatever he wants for the rest of his life, 2.5 billion. So his story sounds a little bit like King Solomon who was the richest man in the history of the world, the most powerful man in the world, uh, the most insightful, educated, intelligent man in the world. He's living in a huge, huge, huge compound that he's built for himself. It took almost twice as long to build his house, his palatial palace as it did God's temple. He's got like a thousand women if you add up all his wives and concubines and and then he's got servants. And he was so rich that in his day, silver became worthless, literally worthless. And so he's writing Ecclesiastes to say, well, I've had everything that anyone could ever think of having, and I find it all meaningless, meaningless, without wisdom, without relationships, without the grace and the presence of God. It's just a mist on a morning that's here today, gone tomorrow, and really without any purpose. It's all vanity, chasing the wind. Well, this guy Marcus Person, a.k.a. Notch, he sells his company, 2.5 billion. He basically retires according to reports and you can't believe everything you read online. But apparently he bought a $70 million home. I think paid cash for it. Um, It has a wall of candy. So I guess if you like candy, that's your thing. There you go. And constant parties. So he could have friends over, celebrities, you know, beautiful people, famous people, interesting people, eccentric people, artistic people. You think, well, that would be it, right? I mean, if you if you today won the lotto at $2.5 billion, you would probably think pff, life's good, right? Like all my dreams have come true. Now the pressure's off and I just get to you know, retire and never worry about balancing my checkbook again and go do whatever I want with whoever I want, wherever I want, however I want. Here's what he says. He started sending out a series of tweets. I'll read them to you. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Wow. We just read Ecclesiastes 4.6. The wise man knows, quote, it's better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. I don't know Marcus' person. I don't know if he knows Jesus or not. We can all pray for him. But man, if anybody here in this does know Marcus Persson, give him a copy of Ecclesiastes, please. It's going to sound like he's reading his journal. He goes on to say, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. You can be lonely in a crowd. He goes on to say, when we sold the company, the biggest effort went into making sure the employees got taken care of, and now they all hate me. And lastly, he tweeted out, found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. Wow. The evil person lives their whole life out of envy and they would look at, Notch and say, that's what I want. And he says, it ain't that great. The foolish person would hear that and disagree and say, I disagree, give me the money, let me give it a run. I bet you I could be happy. And the foolish person doesn't listen to the counsel and experience of others. The wise person says, I'm going to listen to the word of God and I'm going to watch the lives of others, and I'm going to try and glean as much learning as I can so that I I live my life intentionally and not foolishly. Well, Solomon really lacks friendship, relationship. He's got so many wives and so many kids that he doesn't have any real intimacy, love, relationship. And so he talks about uh, four benefits to friends and family. Do you really value your friends and family? I mean, really value them as a a prized, treasured possession. Just heard a guy say, I got $2.5 billion, but no wife. Do you treasure your spouse and the friendship you enjoy with them? He says there are four benefits Solomon does to friends and family. Number one is sharing. Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 8, I observe yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. That's under God. This is life apart from God. This is the case of a man who is all alone, he says, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It is also meaningless and depressing. What he says is, if you're an evil person who's just, competing through obtaining, or you're a foolish person who just wants to have a lot but not have a lot of responsibility. He says, why in the world would we work so hard to have so much if there's no one to share it with? I mean, people today, they're at least extending their singleness or indefinitely postponing marriage, or if they do get married, declining to have children so that what? So that they could work more hours to make more money, to buy more stuff. But then there's no one to share it with. You end up with golf clubs that you never swing because you have no friends or time to go to the course because you're too busy at work. You buy a boat and it just rots on the dock because you don't have time to take it out. And if you do, you don't have any friends to go out with you I was sitting uh, at an airport recently to catch a flight and there was a Hispanic dad sitting there with a beautiful little girl. She was under a year. She was wearing a pink dress and she had just a bunch of black curly hair and a beret in it. She was as cute as could be. And I didn't notice them at first, but I could hear this deep, deep, deep belly laugh from a little kid. You know, that kind of laugh that they can't control it and it overtakes them and their whole body's just shaking. It was a deep belly laugh like that from this little Hispanic girl. And it was so awesome. My kids are older and we used to hear that kind of deep belly baby laugh all the time, but, but now they're older and they'll laugh, but we don't get that deep, awesome belly baby laugh. And she just let it rip. And around him, As he was doting over his little girl, seemed to be a really loving daddy. Various people who were waiting for their flight kind of gave him the stink eye, rolled their eyes. Kind of like, why is that little girl making so much noise? You could just kind of, they were giving him the stink eye. So I walked up to the guy and I said, congratulations, God has given you a tremendous gift. She is a beautiful little girl and that sound is priceless. There's nothing better than the laughter of your child. And he smiled and he thanked me and we chatted for a second. And I want to encourage this dad. He's a rich man. I don't know if he has a lot or he has a little. I don't know him. I don't know. I do know he's got a beautiful little girl that he enjoys and she's got a great laugh and a big smile and whatever he has, he can share with her and he can give to her and and he can he can enjoy with her. So he's a rich man. He's a rich man. I'd rather live in a house that had dents in the walls because the kids were running around and toys in the seat cushions and in the couch than live in a pristine, ready for a magazine photo shoot, museum of a house. What good good is it, he says, to have a lot and nobody to share it with or kids to give it to? You know what, giving is a blessing. Sometimes we wrongly teach that you give to get. No, no, no. Giving is a blessing all by itself. It's more blessed to give than receive, the Bible says. That's why God is the greatest giver and he's the most joyful being in all. You know what? Nobody's given more than God. You know what? Nobody's more joyful than God. You know why? It's more blessed to give than receive. And that's what he's saying. If our mentality is hoarding and not giving, and we're working and amassing and obtaining and not sharing and giving and blessing, he says, why do you do that? Why do you do that? So one of the benefits and blessing of friends and family is the ability to be sharing. Number two, the second benefit of friends and family is helping. He says in Ecclesiastes 4:9 and 10, two people are better than One, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. You know what? You're going to fall. I'm going to fall. Everybody's going to fall. We don't win every day. Some days we lose. We're not healthy every day. Some days we're sick. Uh, We don't uh, have an abundance every day. Some days we have lack and want and need. We don't succeed every day. Some days we fail. We fall down. What happens is if you're busy building your life and not building your relationships, when your life gets hard, there's no one there to help. Man, who has really helped you? Who has come alongside of you? When you fell, when you were down, when times were tough, who was there for you? Friends, family, can't beat them. Old statement says that a friend is one who walks in when everyone is walking out. Oh, yeah, everybody will come over if you live in a mansion and you got a lot of money and you're throwing a party. But let's say you lose your job, you get evicted, you need a place to stay. Who's going to call you and welcome you to crash at their pad? That's your friend. That's your family. And it's not a bad thing, but we do live in a service based economy where what friends and family used to do, we now pay people to do. We don't do a lot of things for one another anymore. We pay others to do those things for us. Man, it's a good week to thank the people that have helped you and to be looking for opportunities to help others. It's a good week to be looking at the people who have shared with you and to thank them and to look for opportunities to share with others. The third, he says, benefit is comforting. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. Amen, campers. But how can one be warm alone? Well, in that day, you had your outer cloak and it basically was your garment to use as a blanket when you were sleeping and traveling and oftentimes out in the elements. And so there was a survival health aspect to where if you huddle up and get some sleep, you'll keep each other warm. But what he's really getting at here too, as well is loneliness, man, the first thing the Bible says that is not good in a perfect world with perfect people before sin infects and affects it all is that it's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. There's a difference between solitude and isolation. Solitude is where you get time to be with the Lord and to heal and to pray and to recover. Isolation is when you're just all by yourself and it's a sad thing. It's not a healing thing, it's a breaking thing. Tell you what, I hate being home alone. Got Grace, got the five kids. Sometimes they'll travel and I won't. Usually I'm the one that travels. I go speak or do something or whatever. Every once in a while I'll be home alone, Grace will be traveling and the kids will be gone and I'm home alone. It's the weirdest thing in the world. It's quiet, it's awkward, it's lonely. I don't like it. I like having my wife around. I like having my kids around. It's comforting. Combats against loneliness. And friends, this is the ministry of presence. Just being with somebody. I like just having Grace around. She's my best friend. I love just having my kids around. I like hearing them laugh and talk and play. And maybe they're engaged with me. Maybe they're out doing something. Doesn't matter. I just like the ministry of presence. That's why God is about the ministry of presence. He says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. That's the Lord Jesus. God says, we're not orphans. He's not a father who leaves his kids. God ministers to us oftentimes, just through His presence. And this comforting ministry of friends and family who are there to combat loneliness, they're a great help. I don't know if you've ever visited at a hospital, probably have. They usually have a place for someone to sleep in the bed with the, next to the bed of the person who's recovering, and that person usually is just there for the ministry of presence, to combat loneliness. And technology, boy, I'll tell you what, it's a double-edged sword. It can help with comforting and loneliness and relationship. It can allow us to stay connected and communicate. But I'll I'll tell you what, it also creates the illusion of intimacy because intimacy requires proximity. And what happens is technology can aid a real relationship, but it can't replace a real relationship. This is why you couldn't have a 50-year marriage based solely on Skype. You can't just parent kids through text. You can't just build a real friendship through Facebook. You need to be there. And number four, the other benefit to friends and family, he says, is protecting. Um, sharing, helping, comforting. Who's comforted you? Who could you comfort? And protecting. Who has protected you and who do you need to protect? He says in four 12, Ecclesiastes 4:12. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. You ever been in a fight? One-on-one, it's kind of tough. Two-on-one, that's really tough. See, what happens in a two-on-one fight, you're fighting somebody in the front and the other person sneaks around the back. This is why people will say things like, I got your back. Soldiers sometimes will say, I got your six. If you think of it at a clock, that's their way of saying, I got your back. What this means is, if we're out and somebody physically is gonna attack you, I'm gonna defend you, or let's say we're at work and someone is trying to destroy you on the job, I got your back, I got your six, I'm paying attention, I got my eyes open, I'm not gonna let them sneak up and destroy you from behind. There are evil people in the world. They wanna hurt you, they wanna punish you, they wanna attack you, they wanna steal from you. It's true physically, it's true emotionally, it's true financially, it's true vocationally, it's true sexually. It's a dangerous world with some dangerous people. A real friend is not the one who turns on you, a real friend is not the one who attacks you. A real friend is not the one who betrays you. A real friend is the one who's got your six. They got your back. Here's what's going on. Here's what you don't see. Here's what you don't know. Here's what they're doing. Here's here's how you need to protect yourself. And they're there for you. Goes on to say a triple braided cord is even better. You know what? Three's even better. You know, if you have one good family or friend, awesome. You got two, even better. Who are you protecting, not in a sinful way, but in a godly way? You're keeping them from harm and danger. You're letting them knowing what's going on in their relationships or in the workplace or, or whatever the case might be. Who has protected you? Who told you what was going on behind your back, things you didn't know, and it really was very helpful, and it protected you, and it saved you. You gotta thank God for them. And the big idea he's driving at here, and really what we have here is a crash course on people says, well, there's evil people, foolish people, wise people, there are four benefits to having wise friends and family, sharing, helping, comforting, protecting. What he's really talking about is being a wise person and living a wise life and understanding yourself as a person and understanding other people and interacting with them appropriately. See, with an evil person, you get away. With a foolish person, you set boundaries and consequences. With a wise person, you draw near to them and you give more information because they're not gonna use it to harm you. And they're not going to use it to argue with you. They're going to use it to become more godly. Man, we all need to seek wisdom by the grace of God. And so he tells us in conclusion that really this crash course in understanding and knowing people, it all comes down to wisdom. That there's a lot of people on the earth, but who do you trust? Who do you confide in? Who do you seek advice from? Who do you draw near to? He says, Chapter 4, 13 through 16, it is better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Such a youth could rise up from poverty and succeed. He might even become king, though he has been in prison. But then everyone rushes to the side of yet another youth who replaces him. Endless crowds stand around him, but then another generation grows up and rejects him too. So it is all meaningless like a chasing of the wind. Here's what he's saying. Wisdom does not come just from age. It doesn't. Now, the longer you live, if you're wise, the more you know. But just because you've lived a long time doesn't mean you've learned a lot. You can be an old fool. You could be a person who is evil. And just because you've lived a long life doesn't mean you've gotten wiser. You've gotten better at doing evil. You could be a foolish person who lives a long life and it doesn't mean you're wiser. It just means you've created more problems and hardship and pain and heartache for others who are responsible through your irresponsibility. He says, wisdom does not just come from age. Right? Wisdom comes from age and godliness. Wisdom comes from age and taking the experiences of life to the Lord and learning from them and making course corrections and adjustments. I got to ask myself, you got to ask yourself, am I getting older or am I getting wiser? Because sometimes we say things like, oh, when I get older and wiser, don't automatically equate those two as synonyms. Sometimes they're antonyms. Number two, wisdom does not necessarily come from hardship. He says, you know what? There could be a guy and he was nobody from nowhere and he was poor and he was in prison and then he rose up and he became a king and he built a company or, He ran a government or he led a ministry. Just because someone's been through hardship does not necessarily mean that they've learned wisdom. Now, going through hardship, if you were wise, will certainly make you wiser. But just because you've been through hard times doesn't mean that you become a godlier person unless you appreciate where you've come from and you've learned the hard lessons along the way. Number three says wisdom does not come from wealth or poverty necessarily. Some people, he says, will look at the poor person and say, you know, they're, they're wise. They didn't get everything handed to them. They, they weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. You know, they've had to learn the hard way. And so I think they're wiser. Well, maybe, maybe not. It depends on whether or not they've been godly and availed themselves to their experiences and learned from them. Other people will say, no, 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 that rich person, they're smarter, they, they came from a smart family, they had a good education, they've seen the world, they've got a lot more experience. If you wanna learn something, go to somebody that has a lot of degrees and a lot of success, and they they come from generations of, of success and education and prominence and preeminence and, and wealth and affluence, and, and then those people are wise because their ideas have been battle-tested over generations, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe yes, maybe no. Just because you're wealthy or just because you're poor doesn't mean you're necessarily godly. Just because you're wealthy, just because you're poor doesn't mean you're necessarily wise. It all depends if you've taken your life experiences and, and observations to the Lord and sought wisdom from Him so that you would become more like Him. And he says, lastly, number four, wisdom is not found in fame. Just because somebody's famous doesn't mean they're wise. And we live in a, a celebrity culture where people wanna be like people who are famous, but just because you're famous doesn't mean you're godly. Just because you're famous doesn't mean you're wise. Just because you're famous doesn't mean that anybody should listen to you or wanna be like you. And this is particularly true in the Western addiction with youth, youth culture. And that's what he says here, right? A Poor but wise youth, somebody who comes from the bottom up to the top, uh, we, we are a, we're a youth worshiping culture. Everybody wants to look young. Everybody wants to be young. There There is an addiction toward youth. The Bible says that gray hair is really an honor, but in our culture, man, you know, the younger you are, the, the better the odds are you're going to be famous. You're going to be known. You're going to be adored. You're going to be idolized. You're going to be, um, emulated, but he talks about the fact that just because somebody's famous doesn't mean they're wise. Some of the wisest people I've ever met are people that you've never heard of and nobody's ever heard of. They live a simple, humble, quiet life. They love the Lord, they love their family, they invest in others, they're just faithful, they're steady, they're godly. There's a wisdom, there's a settledness, there's a rootedness about them that's just remarkable and very unusual talking to a friend recently he's a musician says you know what every rock star ends up at the casino eventually his point is boy when you're young and you're cool you're on tour and everybody loves you and you're trending but eventually we all get old and this is just a culture that just loves youth and not age and as a result every rock star ends up at the casino meaning it just eventually fades and you're not as cool and as hip and as young and as awesome as you once were. And if you're just about getting your life counsel and direction from trends and fads, that's not wisdom. That's not wisdom. So where do you go for wisdom? Well, I'll close with this. A crash course in people. We gotta ask ourselves, am I evil? Or where am I evil? Am I foolish? Where am I foolish? Am I wise? Where am I wise? Do I share with others? Do I help others? Do I comfort others? Do I protect others? And when it comes to figuring out what to do with my whole life, where do I go for wisdom? Am I living under the myth that older equals wiser or tough times make us better or wealth or poverty will give us insights? Or if I just do like the famous and successful people, I'll be fine? No. Wisdom comes from at least five places. Let me share them with you in closing and I give them to you and I hope you avail yourself to them. Number one, wisdom comes from God, the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom. This is where praying, a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit, spending time in silence and solitude and journaling and listening to be led by the spirit to be informed by the spirit there is wisdom for life that comes from a personal relationship with the holy spirit because sometimes you don't know how to process what is happening you don't know how to learn from your mistakes you don't know how to understand what god would have you to do in the next season of life or what to learn or who to be and the holy spirit he is the one who comes along to impart and to deposit wisdom I the Bible says that Jesus, you know, even as a young man, people marveled at him because of his wisdom. Well, it's because the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's what the Bible tells us. Number two, wisdom comes from the Scriptures. The Bible tells us repeatedly that the Scriptures, part of their intent is to make us wise, to make us wise, to give us God's thoughts, to let us see from God's perspective, to be confronted with God's truth and God's reality so that we see things as God sees them. That's wisdom. Do you have a personal relationship with God, the Holy Spirit? Are you Spirit-filled? Are you Spirit-led? Are you person of prayer? Do you hear and know the voice of God and God does speak? And the primary way that the Holy Spirit speaks is through scripture. He inspired the scriptures to be written so that we might hear his voice and be guided in wisdom. In The pattern of Jesus through understanding of scripture. The less you are in scripture, the more foolish and evil you will become. Number three, wisdom comes from wise people, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, people who have learned from the experiences of life, people who do know the Bible, wise people. These are counselors, Some of them formal, some of them informal, some of them pastors and legal counselors, those who provide advice for how to navigate life. Um, Psychological counselors who provide counsel for how to process our experiences and interpret um, our days. Wise people, who in your life is wise? Who do you go to for advice Sometimes foolish people pick foolish counselors and evil people pick evil counselors and they call those friendships. They're not, they're alliances. They're unholy alliances to do evil. Are you taking advice from people who are wise or foolish? Number four, wisdom comes from observation. This is watching fools. Proverbs does this a lot. Ecclesiastes is doing this as well. Solomon is saying, look at my life and look at some evil and foolish things that I've done and learn from my example. Don't do what I've done, learn from me. Sometimes we learn by watching people that have really done evil or folly. I've been guilty of that, so have you. We need to take those lessons and share them with others to help them. Not in a way that's arrogant, but hopefully humble. One of the things that I've done over the years is uh, couples that end up in adultery or divorce, when I've met with them, I'll ask, tell me what happened? Because I wanna see if there's patterns, I wanna learn so that I can safeguard my own marriage and also so that I can help others to see patterns that could lead to disaster and ruin in their own relationship. You know, a friend of mine calls this, letting someone else pay your dumb tax. Sometimes by watching other people say, okay, that that was not a good idea. Um, and I, don't, I want to learn from them so I don't have to suffer the pain that they suffer. And number five, wisdom comes from self-reflection. And this is what Solomon is doing for us throughout Ecclesiastes. A lot of this is really just kind of a personal journal from a guy who's at the end of his life, self-reflecting, looking back. Okay, what decisions did I make when I was young? What was really driving me? Was I... Was I evil? Was I foolish? Was I wise? Um, Was I close to the Lord, far from the Lord? Was I filled with the Spirit? Was I grieving, quenching, resisting the Spirit? Was I submitting to the Scriptures? Was I resisting the Scriptures? Did I surround myself with wise people? Or did I pick all my friends to be yes-men and women? Uh, Did I observe the lives of others and learn vicariously from their successes and their failures? Or was I a person who just plowed ahead with my eyes closed, stubborn? and it's, it's self-reflection. And so sometimes you and I need to just sit down and journal and think and pray and and process and to reflect back on the seasons and experiences of our lives. Okay, God, what can I learn from that? How can I never do that again? That that really was a moment of deliverance and wisdom and insight that, that slingshotted me forward into the next season of my life. Okay, God, what do I learn about that? Because I want to experience that again. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I'm mortified and horrified looking back at the things that I've said and done and failed to say and do. And Lord God, save me for myself. How do, I, how do I learn from that so that I don't keep doing it again? Because the difference between the foolish person and the wise person is not that they fail, but whether or not they learn from it and make course corrections and life adjustments so that it doesn't continually happen as a precedence and pattern. And that brings us to the Lord Jesus, the one who is greater than Solomon, the one filled with the Holy Spirit, who is the incarnate word of God and came humbly into human history and devoted himself to the study of scripture. He is the wisest person who has ever lived wiser than Solomon. He's the one we go to for counsel and wisdom. He's the one who helps us to have open eyes and hearts and minds to learn from the vicarious example of others. And if we take the time to sit down with him, he's happy to forgive us and to love us and to help us to reflect back on our life and make course corrections and adjustments so that as we have opportunity, we become increasingly more like him because we've spent time with him. If you want to hang out with somebody, here's the big idea. Start with Jesus. Thanks for your time.